Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. I am thrilled to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Michael Greger, one of the top Brock stars in the plant-based movement. Um, he is, of course, the, the founder of nutritionfacts.org, and he is also the author of the wildly, insanely successful books, How Not to Die and How Not to Diet, in which he lays out in depth the science behind the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. Today, we're going to talk about his new book, How to Survive a Pandemic, which obviously could not be more timely. Surprisingly, most people have no idea that Dr. Greger's medical background is actually an infectious disease, and he even wrote a book back in 2006 on pandemic planning and preparedness. Well, his quarantine was spent revisiting that material and presenting the latest, most seminal science amidst all the noise and nonsense that currently surround us. Know this, when it comes to the global health of our planet, every one of your choices have a profound impact. Dr. Greger and I discussed measures to protect yourself now and in the future, along with ways that we can stop the emergence of pandemics in the first place. This, of course, includes the disastrous implications of our current animal agriculture practices. It wouldn't be a conversation with Dr. Greger if we didn't dig in to other nutrition facts. So quite literally, buckle up your seatbelts for this one. He is a man who walks the walk and talks the talk quite literally. If you're going to watch this episode on our YouTube channel, you'll see him walking on his treadmill the entire time. Don't get dizzy. So with that, let's wind him up and put him to the test, Dr. Michael Greger. I want to personally invite you to join us and the wild man, Dr. Michael Greger, and a host of all the other Brock stars for our upcoming online Plant Stock Weekend from August 14th to the 16th. This live weekend extravaganza is going to be packed with science and practical application and is a chance for your whole household to learn together and cook along with us as we give you a front row seat to all the talks and a backstage pass to the Esselstyn family farm. And if you're busy and you can't watch it live, hey, no sweat. Video access will be included with your ticket for a year after the event. Visit plantstock2020.com today to learn more. All right, I am here, season two of the Plant Strong Podcast with Dr. Michael Greger. 
You, my man, have the hugest heart of a hero. You are Mr. NutritionFacts.org. You are Mr. How Not to Die, How Not to Diet, How to Survive a Pandemic. It is it's truly amazing to me uh, the brand that you have created over the last, really, I think, what, four or five years with How Not to Die. Um, it, is, it is phenomenal. And so huge congrats to you on, on all your success and all the people that you're re reaching with your message. Oh, thank you so much. I feel the same about you. It's, yeah. um, I'm just glad to be on the team. Oh, geez, Louise. So uh, how, not, how Not to Die on the cover, you had the green leafies. I think it might have been kale, right? Um, yeah, actually, I think it's mustard greens. The mustard, <laughs> mustard greens. greens. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never have enough mustard greens. Okay, that's what I'm going to do they tonight. Actually, they actually started out trying to give me some bullshit lettuce. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. Not enough nutritional integrity there. And what about cruciferous? Cruciferous, baby. And then uh, how not to how not to diet? You got berries. You got a bunch of berries on the front, right? Spelling right. out how not to diet for how to survive a pandemic. Now remember, I, I don't have that in hardback. You see, I got them right behind me here. Oh, nice! But the pandemic, I got on my Kindle, right? And and I can't make out what are we talking there? What kind of virus is that? Oh, that's a whole bunch of uh, wonky-looking coronaviruses. They are. Yeah, they are. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it does. It does. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh, first book. Eat these. Second book. Eat these. Third book. Stay the hell away from these. Yeah, for sure. So why? Tell me this. Why did you move away from the How Not to Die brand? Why was it How Not to Die from a pandemic? As a well, that's actually what it started out. It started oh, out How Not to Die from a pandemic. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, people, the, the publisher thought it was too morose. Um, and I thought they'd be the ones who wanted to, I mean, they're the they're, they're all the branding stuff. I don't care what the hell we call it. I just want the information to get out there. Um, yeah, but yeah, they yeah. actually thought they wanted, uh, it was more important for them not to sound so, uh, you know, uh, death Nelly in, uh, in, this, uh, in this time of Corona. Yeah. That they thought uh, survive sounds a little more uh, uplifting as uplifting as any pandemic book can be. But if you've uh, cracked it open, it's not oh. exactly, you know, beach summer reading. Oh, I cracked it open. It is, it is intense, man. It is, we're gonna, I'd love to dive into that in a sec. So How Not to Die, you dedicated to your grandma. How Not to Diet, you dedicated to your mom, who you say is the source of everything that's good in your life. She must have been. Is she still alive, Michael? She is still alive. Upstate New York, where all the best people are, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, Binghamton. Binghamton. Fantastic, fantastic. And then, How to Survive a Pandemic, you dedicated to, and it, help me if I'm not pronouncing his name yeah. correctly, Lai, right? Lee. Um, Lee, no, sorry. Lee Van Leong, yeah. Lee Van Leong. And, and can you tell me why you dedicated it to him? Yeah, so he was actually one of the first whistleblowers in China. He was an ophthalmologist at Wuhan Central Hospital. Um, and he saw these cases come in from that uh, seafood market of uh, this SARS-like pneumonia virus. They used to call it the, the seafood market uh, pneumonia virus until we uh, figured out what it was. Um, and he sent uh, a private message to his colleagues 
saying that, you know, watch out. There's this new respiratory pathogen out there. Take yeah. care of yourself. Take care of your families. Take care of your uh, fellow patients and colleagues. And he was actually called um, uh, before the, uh, the, uh, the local government agencies and silenced. In fact, was uh, threatened uh, with, uh, you know, for, uh, for disturbing the public order um, and, 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 and spreading rumors. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I mean, had his message, his warning to the world gotten out, we may very well have uh, averted this entire pandemic and been able to extinguish it at its source. But because the Chinese government covered it up, um, uh, uh, the world didn't know about it uh, for many more weeks. And so, uh, and very tragically in his case, he was the kind of uh, one of the early heroes in all this. Um, he, uh, within, uh, you know, 39 days after he sent that message yeah. out to his colleagues, after, uh, after contracting the very virus he was warning people about, he was uh, dead at age 33, a, a family man, very tragic. Um, and it's, and uh, so I, I felt that, uh, you know, uh, we needed to um, yeah. kind of prop up that heroism. We need more of that in the world. Um, if there's ever, ever a time for transparency and for global unity, and for standing up and protecting each other, now is the time. Amen to that. So at, at 33, he seems like he was very young and, and not, a, you know, not in kind of a vulnerable group or demographic to, to, to die from, from that. I mean, is it because potentially he took in uh, a, a large amount or something like that? Well, it's possible they weren't uh, using the, uh, the proper protective gear right. because they just really weren't sure at that point. But look, look, young people, um, young, healthy people are dying. It is, however, very rare. Um, and so under age 50, without uh, these comorbid conditions, without these underlying yeah. disease conditions, the risk of death is less than one in a thousand um, from this virus. Um, but, uh, but, you know, as we know in this country, not having underlying risk factor diseases yeah, uh, yeah. is uh, a bit of a rarity. No, no, no kidding. Um, so the last time that I saw you in person, we were, man, we, we, did, we just escaped, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you really escaped. Everybody oh. burned at the airport. So, so just to give people a little bit of background, you and I both were on the Holistic Holiday at Sea cruise ship. It was February 28th, I believe. And, you know, I, I saw you for the first time as we were getting ready to get off the ship. You, had, you actually were already taking precautions. You had your, your purple gloves on. Yeah, I yeah. am. Didn't, didn't have a mask on yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my phone was on the fritz. It had a virus, right? <laughs> 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 And so you're like, man, you know what, let's, and I wanted to catch this early flight to the airport. So anyway, you were kind enough to, we caught an Uber, we got there. I, I literally was the last person on the plane. It was phenomenal. But, but since then, we're now, we're now. You're just an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> you don't give yourself enough to, I know you, you're like trying to blame the victim here, but you're like, all right, all right, three, two, one, go. And then you're like sprinting. <laughs> It's exciting. It is exciting. Living on the edge, baby. 
but but so so we're five months in. We're five months into the the coronavirus now. Six <clears throat> months in. Six. Thank you. Six. Six. How do you see this unfolding? It's the new normal. You know, in fact, I wrote in the book, which, uh, you know, was published a few months ago. It's out uh, next, uh, yeah, next month, August in, yeah. uh, in uh, you know, physical copies. But, you know, I was saying it's not going away in the summer. People are saying, oh, it's going to, no, no, no. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, and indeed, um, we're still, uh, you know, as Fauci says, knee deep in the first wave. It's not going anywhere soon. We're far from reaching herd immunity, so-called herd immunity, which is yeah. the only thing that really puts a stop uh, to pandemics. Um, vaccines, as much as Operation Warp Speed would have us think there's going to be a vaccine by the end of the year, um, uh, it's not going to hit the general population until probably early second half of the next year. Jeez. So it's a matter yeah. of really hunkering down in the new normal. And I think most importantly, critically reflecting where did this virus come in the, from the in the first place and is there anything we can do to prevent even greater infectious disease threats in the future well and you bring up a great point because from everything that i've seen it doesn't seem like you know <clears throat> the root cause of these pandemics is hit the mainstream media yet and they're not connecting the dots what what is it going to take yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is something that I actually spent the first half of my professional life studying um, on emerging infectious disease. In fact, that's how I got into Oprah and, you know, you know I, that's actually most of my published writings in the peer-reviewed scientific literature is actually on infectious disease, not chronic disease. Yeah. Um, you know, I was shouting this from the rooftops over a decade ago, as were my public health colleagues, but no one was ready to listen. So that's why I shifted over to chronic disease. Um, so, you know, but, you know, heart disease has only been the number one killer every single year for the last hundred years from uh, 1919 to uh, 2019. And the reason it wasn't the number one killer in the United States for longer than that is because we had a pandemic in 1918. And I knew another pandemic was coming. But until then, until people would actually listen, um, I decided, well, let's just fall back on uh, the, uh, the leading killer um, uh, that people will listen to. Yeah. And so that's why I switched over to chronic disease, heart disease. Um, but of course, now what we're learning with this infectious disease threat, you know, these are the same diseases, the chronic diseases, high blood pressure, type two diabetes, heart disease, obesity. This is the same um, chronic diseases are enhancing our risk of being hospitalized and dying from this new infectious disease threat. So it's really, all one health um uh and so uh, now is the time if there was ever a time to start taking care of yourself to start uh, you know becoming active getting better sleep reducing stress staying connected albeit uh, you know out remotely from friends and family and starting to eat healthier we should take this time take this opportunity um to uh to really uh you know uh, care about our health not only in the far future um, but right here and now. What did we, so in your book, you, you, you set it up like this murder mystery detective story, right? With this guy, uh, Jeffrey uh, Tobenberger, right? Something like yeah. that. Who, who basically decides that he is going to go and he's going to find some victims uh, that perished from, from uh, the Spanish flu. 
and and by God, he does it, right? <laughs> Unbelievable, right? So this is the deadliest plague in human history. No war, no yeah. no disease ever killed so many people in so short a time as the 1918 virus killing more people in a few months and AIDS has killed um, uh, in decades, for example. Yeah. Um, and we didn't know, back then, we didn't even know what influenza was. Um, we hadn't even identified the virus yet. And so um, where did it come from? How can we prevent in the future? And you say, well, yeah, but what do we have back then yeah. in terms of uh, pathological specimens? There's actually some. There was a, um, uh, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln actually set up this army pathology unit um, that to store um, tissues from soldiers. And it actually still exists um uh, in dc and so there were these little bits and pieces of the virus in these little um uh, these little fixed uh, slides of lungs from way back that period but we really needed more tissue and uh, it's this really amazing story yeah, of like digging up uh you know victims frozen <laughs> in the alaskan permafrost yeah um and they found uh, someone who was uh, this woman who was, uh, who was obese enough to insulate her lungs. Um, and, and, she was, uh, and she was nestled in between two skeletons. That's, it's amazing. Well, see, there is a benefit to obesity in all this. <laughs> so, so, right, so in a century when they dig you up to figure out what this COVID-19 yeah. thing was, you're gonna be the one. There's a silver lining. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, bottom line, spoiler alert, it yeah. turns that it was a bird flu. It was a bird flu virus, a holy avian virus, that had jumped species um, and, uh, and accumulated this unparalleled virulence. Um, so it was killing about 2% of the people it infects. Um, compare that to the 0.4% that, uh, that uh, um, COVID-19 yeah. is killing. So much deadlier um, uh, virus. And, uh, and we think it was the trenches of World War I, um, the crowded, stressful, unhygienic conditions where the virus could ramp up virulence and still transmit um, to, uh, to, to, to others uh, because uh, when you have transmission from a mobilized host, that's where you really get virulent viruses. Normally, there's a, there's a, there's a, a mechanism by which viruses can't get too deadly because if they get too deadly, they won't spread as well. Yes. Right. You want somebody sick, but I mean, if someone just drops dead, then they're is not going to go out and infect all their uh, all their you know village mates. And is that is that essentially what happened with uh, with mirrors? Oh, so uh, it's interesting. So there is so right. This is uh, COVID nineteen is the third of uh, third deadly coronavirus outbreak in humans. There are others um, in pigs uh, coming out of China as well. First with SARS. Yeah. Um, uh, Two thousand two. Uh, and then, then too was this was this MERS, this Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, where it was uh, where unlike so influenza viruses originate in waterfowl and shorebirds like ducks, whereas coronavirus, most human coronaviruses originate from bats. Right. Um, but just like with the flu, we don't get flu from ducks because in ducks, uh, you know, the flu virus is actually a harmless natural intestinal waterborne infection only when it's transmitted into a land-based bird, a terrestrial bird like a chicken or quail, 
does the virus have to mutate to find a new way to spread? Chickens aren't paddling around in the pond. And what it does is it finds the lungs, becomes a respiratory pathogen. Um, and so basically we put chickens in the same kind of trench warfare conditions, crowded, confined, stressed, but by the billions, yeah. uh, not millions, and we're ramping up the virulence of these viruses as well. Um, uh, and uh, so, so, but it's, but it was, it existed, the flu virus existed harmlessly for millions of years before the first person ever got a flu. It was only when we started domesticating ducks, bringing them in contact uh, with land-based birds, uh, this unnatural contact, were we able to uh, create the human flu. And similarly in coronaviruses, we don't get coronaviruses directly from bats, um, uh, but through uh, an intermediate species. Um, that allows the virus to mutate to better adapt to human beings. The case of SARS, it went bat to civet cat, which is this kind of cat-like yeah. creature prized for its flesh um, uh, in these live animal wet markets. Um, in the case of MERS, it was bats to camels, domesticated camels, um, uh, particularly in the Middle East, um, and then from camels to people, largely through saliva respiratory uh, secretions, and COVID-19, the leading candidate for the intermediate stepping stone species is bats to pangolins, these uh, endangered scaly anteater creatures, yeah. uh, again, prized for its flesh and, and so-called and, and, and uh, proposed uh, medicinal qualities um, that uh, allowed this virus to then jump to human beings. So, <clears throat> you know, they shut down the wet markets for a little bit, right? And from what I've heard, they've opened them back up. Uh, it, you know, in your book, you talk about how there are roughly 14 million people involved in China's kind of wildlife uh, farming industry, 14 million people involved. I mean, I mean, uh, the, the, the pressure that the government must have been under to open them back up. I mean, it seems it seems it seems a little bit egregious that they've already opened them back up. Well, you know, if they were, so the, in, uh, when SARS hit in 2002, 2003, they similarly closed down these live animal markets because we, they figured that's where SARS was coming from. Yet months later, civets were back on the menu. Had they continued their ban, we would not now be suffering the worst pandemic in a century. Um, uh, now, what's happened now, but I mean, the benefits of having an autocratic um, system of governance is that uh, that uh, you can uh, you know you can impose uh, constraints on business that uh, may not have been able uh, uh, otherwise? And right now, the the ban on live markets continues in China. What you're seeing, if you've seen yeah. photos of what's happening in markets, they continue to sell domestic animals. You can still have live bird markets, um, but uh, the ban on wildlife yeah. trading continues and exempted from wildlife is turtles and seafood. There's some other things you say, wait a second. You know, I see these live turtles. They're still selling them. They're exempted. But um, uh, the, the pangolin trade has been shut down. The civet trade has been shut down. Now, it may not be permanent. Um, we have to continue to keep pressure um, uh, on, uh, on China. But, uh, but uh, for the time being, um, we are, we're relatively protected in that region of the world for new coronaviruses, what I'm most concerned about is the, are these new influenza viruses. According to the CDC, the yeah. leading candidate for the next pandemic virus after COVID-19 is a bird flu virus 
by the name of H7N9. Now that has, that's a hundred times deadlier than COVID-19. Instead of one in 250 people um, dying, H7N9 has killed 40% of the people infected, right? So 1918, that was 2% fatality. I mean, imagine a pandemic infecting billions where death is closer to a flip of a coin. But the good news is there's something we can do about it. Just like shutting down these live animal markets can reduce our risk of you know, killer coronavirus outbreaks, reforming the way we raise domestic animals for food may help forestall the next killer flu. It's an honor to work with sponsors and supporters who take an active role, not just in the health of our planet, but also the health of our domesticated animals. Wild Earth is a sustainable pet food company with a mission to make dog food better and cruelty-free because I think you'll agree, our pets and our planet are worth it. No meat ingredients and no kennel animal testing means no animal cruelty of any kind. Visit the episode at plantstrongpodcast.com to claim up to 50% off your order. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, and when I think about the billions of chickens that we eat in this country alone and uh, the, the horrific con- conditions in which they're, they're living, um, what do you think the chances are that we can move beyond doing something as ridiculous as, as raising and, and, and killing all these chickens? And how far away do you think we are from um, cellular fermentation where we can actually grow the same muscle in a lab and now we don't have the threat of, uh, you know, of these pandemics. Yeah, yeah. So as you know, it's not just the numbers of animals being raised, but the conditions. When we yeah. cram thousands of animals in these, you know, cram filthy football field size sheds to lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, it's just a breeding ground for disease. There's, a, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the, 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 the ammonia from decomposing waste, burning their lungs, lack of fresh air lack of sunlight, put all these factors together. It's really a perfect storm environment for the breeding of these so-called super strains of influenza. Bottom line, it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. And so there are certainly things we can do to reform animal agriculture. I mean, they're the ones that could use a little uh, social distancing. They need <laughs> yeah, yeah. room themselves. Um, uh, and there's certainly things like, so just providing straw bedding to pigs so they don't have the immunosuppressive stress of lying on bare concrete their whole lives um, actually reduces swine flu transmission rates. But, uh, but I think you really nailed it in terms of let's take even a further step back. Yeah. Say, wait a second. What we're facing now that we've had a taste, now that we've had a fire drill to kind of wake us up out of our complacency, a dress rehearsal of what pandemics look like and realizing, wait a second, this is, you know, uh, 0.4% uh, case fatality rate, H79 and 9, 40%, 100 times worse. I mean, as bad as COVID-19 has been, I don't want to minimize it, but look, as bad as it's been, you know, stores are still being restocked with groceries, yeah. right? People are, uh, I mean, the, the electricity is on. We got, we got clean tap water yeah. still running. Doctors are showing up to work. 
I mean, if this was really 40% chance of dying, I mean, you could imagine um, it could leave civilization in shambles. And so when the stakes are that big, then we need to change the way we're making stakes, as you said, absolutely, right? So we yeah. need to accelerate this, uh, uh, this, this, this movement towards plant-based meats, plant-based egg products, plant-based milks. Um, I mean, what was unthinkable 10 years ago, look at the dairy case these days, yeah. right? This constellation of new consumer options, give people better choices, and boom, we have major dairy corporations declaring bankruptcy in this country. And at the same time, what are the biggest meat packers in the world doing? Smithfield, Hormel, Tyson, Purdue. They're coming out with these plant-based lines of plant-based burgers and meatballs and sausages and chicken nuggets, um, or doing hybrid products where it's like half uh, plant protein, half animal protein. I mean, this isn't like tofurkey. This isn't some niche vegetarian product, right? This is, this is in the meat case. Um, uh, you know, really trying to, um, to shift over, but you know, there's always going to be some people who are going to be like, you know, you gotta have to, to wrench that pork chop out of my cold dead hand kind of thing. And for those hardcore meat eaters, we have the choice that you just outlined this possibility. Well, wait a second. People are just eating the, the muscle. Why, why make the whole animal? Yeah. Um, with all the parts that are dangerous, like the intestines. Uh, what, what's salmonella? E. coli, Campylobacter, these are intestinal bugs, fecal bugs, right? What, if we made meat without the intestines, you don't have to cook the crap out of the meat if there's no crap to begin with. It's perfect, right? Yeah. Just like if you raise meat without lungs, then you don't have to worry about brewing up new respiratory pathogens, right? And so, yeah, we have the tissue engineering technology, and we can already create like human ears and all sorts of things in medicine. So wait a second, why not use that same kind of tissue engineering to just in a sterile environment, make all the muscle meat you want. Um, and so the technology is there. What we haven't been able to do is scale it up to make it affordable. Yeah. Um, and, so, uh, and so, but that is certainly one of these options in the future. So look, people can eat all the meat they want without um, you know, putting us all at risk for a pandemic without contributing um, uh, to, to global warming. Now, from a personal health standpoint, it's still meat. It's still animal protein, right? Um, so, and, and look, a lot of these plant-based burgers and stuff, right? These are not, these are highly processed. They add sodium. These are not health foods, healthier, certainly. Yeah. But, you know, look, from a personal health standpoint, it's your body, your choice. You want to go smoke cigarettes, go bungee jump and do whatever you want, right? But when it comes to global health, when it comes to the risk of a pandemic virus, where all of a sudden risk goes from eating to breathing, well, then what you eat actually makes a difference to me. Your personal decisions, our humanity's personal decisions actually impact you know, our future generations, impact our children. In that case, we really do need to shift away from animal agriculture altogether. Absolutely. Uh, so tell me this, from, from everything you've learned, uh, if somebody gets infected with the coronavirus, are they now immune from another, <sighs> we, another bout? Well, okay, you know, that's what everybody's banking on, right? We are banking on the fact that, um, you know, a vaccine would be effective and that once you get the disease, your body can mount 
uh, an immune response that can keep one's self immune at least in the short term. Unfortunately, what we're finding is that within weeks of contracting the disease, um, there's a critical decline in the antibodies that your body creates to attack this virus. And so it seems that our immunity is much more short-lived than we would like. Um, uh, so for example, typical coronaviruses are a couple common cold coronaviruses, just like there are mild flu viruses and then killer pandemic flu viruses, there are mild coronaviruses. And, uh, and for them, uh, the reason they cause the common cold year after year is because immunity lasts for 45 weeks. So you get the cold, um, and then 45 weeks later, it's like you never got the cold and, and you're, you're completely susceptible to getting the cold again from these uh, two common coronaviruses. And so we're looking in, now, there are some diseases like chickenpox where immunity is measured in the decades, 30 years later. You got chickenpox 30 years ago, your body's still pumping out antibodies, ready to yeah. attack. But there's something about coronaviruses that, uh, that just uh, uh, it doesn't leave enough of an imprint. Now, having said that, there are two different, um, two different dimensions to long-lasting immunity this so-called memory immunity. One is those antibodies. The other are our T cells, so-called memory T cells, that can remember the virus and can provide a certain level of immunity. We have not yet had studies testing um, whether or not um, T cell immunity drops like the antibody immunity. So it's possible, like with SARS, if you come back um, uh, months later after SARS victims, their uh, antibody response also dropped but they still had some pretty good T cell immunity. So um, there's still hope um, that we should get at least some, um, uh, some uh, immunity measured in weeks or months, in which case we may have to get multiple vaccinations, just like every year there's a new flu vaccine because the, the virus keeps mutating. Um, uh, and so it's, uh, it may not be kind of a one-shot solution. And of course, the less immunity we get, um, the harder it is to eradicate this virus from the face of the planet. And what these antibody titer studies also showed is that people with asymptomatic infections, people that you know, really got off lucky and uh, you know, hardly didn't even feel yeah. it, they're the ones that really don't have a lot of immunity. I mean, it just wasn't enough of a shock to the system that your body bothered to even be uh, um, producing much of uh, a, a, a response. And so it's people that really got sick that may be more protected. But, so someone who tests positive, but you know, really did, didn't even know they really got it and thinks, oh, now I'm immune, um, uh, it may not. Well, uh, uh, it's still an open question. So have you, have you been on an airplane in the last four months? I have, unfortunately. Um, so what, uh, do you, what are the precautions you take when you're flying? Yeah, yeah so I, was, uh, I had a friend I needed to take care of. Um, and, uh, and it's really the worst place to be is a closed, confined indoor space for long periods of time. It's really the riskiest exposure because primarily a respiratory pathogen. Now, um, uh, there's a, you know, airplanes actually have much better ventilation, um, much better ventilation um, than any other enclosed space. And so what you do, if you do have to be on a plane, of course, you have a mask on, of course. Um, uh, you are uh, making sure to sanitize your hands before touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Um, and you should have every one of those little air flower <laughs> things blasting in your face. Um, because that, that's actually HEPA filter. 
So that's okay. how you filtered air. Um, and so you're basically creating a wall of ah. ventilation over your face. Um, and uh, yeah, and then. Because um, you can't, it's hard to social distance on an airplane. Well, it's even worse now. Before, um, uh, on uh, my first flight out, uh, they weren't, uh, uh, they weren't packed people in, in middle seats at least. So yeah. you had at least a foot or two. But uh, oh, on the way back, Spirit Airlines, man, we were packed to the gills. It was bad. I was in the middle seat. Um, and in fact, let me see. I got back on uh, Sunday. I'm uh, about uh, going on day four. So uh, typical start showing symptoms day four or five. So, so far, so good. And give me another 10 days and I'll be in the clear. <laughs> well, you, you look good. Because, um, you know, we're our family, we're actually – we're flying in about a week. Okay. And then we're going to be making, driving, making the trek to Upper State New York for plant stock. Got it. Okay. And then we're, but we're going to quarantine for two weeks in Wisconsin. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Now driving, driving is perfect. You're on your own, right? I mean, I mean, you know, uh, you can only get this virus as the virus can get to you. And where's the virus come from? Other people. It's about distance, distance, distance. They're really, the, the data on masks is really quite poor. I still encourage people to use them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, originally we were thinking it's just these large respiratory droplets that are coughed out or sneezed out or uh, in, in conversational speech, little tiny droplets come out. But it may actually um, be aerosol spread, meaning such tiny droplets that actually waft in the air like little dust motes, um, such that um, that can go right around a mask, um, unless yeah. it's inside of the face or through a mask. And so, my, my, so uh, better than nothing, absolutely, but we should not get lulled into a false sense of security, right? Saying, oh, I got a mask on, it's okay if I you know, go to the bar and hang out for a couple hours with people shouting over the music, not a good idea. Yeah. Uh, I want to read something. It's, it's towards the end of your book. And uh, you say, I don't want to minimize the seriousness of, COVID, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions could die. But a pandemic triggered by a bird flu virus could leave hundreds of millions of dead. Now you have a quote. An influenza pandemic of even moderate impact, Osterholm wrote, will result in the biggest single human disaster ever, far greater than AIDS, 9-11, all wars in the 20th century, and the recent tsunami combined, it has the potential to redirect world history as the Black Death redirected European history in the 14th century. Like you just said a little earlier, this is the ultimate fire drill, and, uh, and, and we gotta do whatever it takes to prevent another pandemic. Because if it's as, if it, instead of being like you said, you know, 0.04% of the people dying, it's 30, 40%, uh, we're, we're talking a whole new ballgame. Seriously, but you know, it's almost too horrible to even contemplate. And I think that's yeah. why um, yeah. public health leaders like Michael Osterholm at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, you know, who have been shouting for the, uh, over this for decades. It's like, it, it sounds like some apocalyptic Stephen mm. King novel. Like it's just, that couldn't happen. But I think now people, because people forget 1918, you know, okay, but now, I mean, I think people will be like, wow, okay. Uh, you know, I, I see how a virus can basically bring the global economy to its knees. Yeah. But what if instead of just livelihoods, we were talking about, you know, the decimation of, uh, you know, not one in, uh, you know, uh, a few thousand Americans, 
but you know one in you know a handful i mean that's just that just you know would, would really really kind of end civilization as we know it and so that's why you know when we talk about things that just sound so big reforming the food system yeah. you know the food that is the most profitable industry on the planet it's a multi-trillion dollar industry bigger than petroleum right it's the food industry is what we all have to eat but if this if there was ever a time for us to fundamentally rethink how we're producing food distributing food and what we're eating this is the time to do it um and so that could be talk about silver linings that could be really the silver lining is that this will wake people up enough that will really change course all right i, I want to change course speaking of changing course because i know we got about six minutes left before you got a, a another uh, appointment uh I want to transition to how not to diet, right? Mm -hmm. that, that came out in 2019. You, you're dealing with a whole nother pandemic there, right? <laughs> right? The obesity, uh, you know, the uh, uh, epidemic that we got going on. This book is primarily all about weight loss, right? The most sure. effective way to lose weight. Yeah. My question to you, let's just cut right to the chase. What, what's the optimum diet for health and weight loss according to, your, according to this book? Is there one diet to rule them all? There is one diet to rule them all. And let me just, um, before, I, uh, yeah, before yeah. I reveal, do the big reveal, we need to recognize that you don't have to be obese to set yourself up for severe uh, COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. Even having a BMI of 28, that's being 175 pounds of the average American height, puts you at nearly six times the risk of a severe course from COVID-19. So, you know, the average BMI in the U.S. is 29. So oh. even being skinnier than the average American, you could have so much excess body fat that it puts you at nearly six times the risk of a severe course. So this is not like, oh, I have obesity. I'm going to get osteoarthritis and my knees aren't going to work. I'm not going to be able to play with my grandkids. I'm going to get diabetes. And no, I mean, yes, all that. But also... Um, it's going to help you right now. And look, we're six months in. If you would have, yeah. you know, six months ago, uh, taking this opportunity, you're not eating out so much. All of a sudden, you have some more control over your day-to-day -day diet, over what's in your surroundings. You know, people could really start getting healthy, and it's not too late because the virus isn't going anywhere soon. Anyway, but getting to the science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, with so much nutritional noise and nonsense these days, I wanted you there to finally just be an evidence-based diet book. And uh, so to that end, uh, you know, I cite thousands of studies digging up every possible, you know, tip, trick, tweak technique proven to yeah. accelerate the loss of body fat, to give people every possible advantage, basically build them optimal weight loss solution from the ground up. And what is that optimal weight loss solution? There is a study, a published in New Zealand, so-called broad study, where this was the study that showed more greater weight loss than any other comparable trial at six months, 12 months, meaning every, any other study that didn't uh, you know, put people on diet shakes or somehow restrict their calories or enforce some exercise regimen, um, the most effective intervention ever published in the medical literature in human history was a whole food plant-based diet. And so one doesn't have to mortgage their health, right? Yeah. The goal of weight loss is not to fit into a skinnier casket, right? Beautiful. We can have the best of both worlds. The healthiest diet just so happens to be the diet um, uh, best shown to uh, reduce in uh, to, to the safest, yeah. cheapest way to lose weight. So, I mean, it's really the best of uh, 
best of all worlds. And uh, looking forward to uh, writing the next one. What What's the most surprising thing that you learned in writing this book? Oh my God, so much crazy stuff. I had no idea, like the chronobiology stuff. So the, yeah. the uh, probably the second biggest chapter after all the fasting stuff was this book on chronobiology, the effect of our circadian rhythms on um, on our health. So for example, calories at night are more fattening than the exact same calories earlier in the day. Yeah. You the same snack, the same food, you put you actually gain more body fat from food eating at night compared to food eating the day. That's crazy. Like yeah. Well, yeah. calorie is not a calorie. Like if that's no we should not be eating after 7 p.m. The fewer calories after sundown, the better. And it's not just um, body fat accumulation, but it affects our blood sugars and our cortisone levels and on down the list. And that that was just that there's a whole new field of science that, you know, I, I really enjoyed learning about yeah. and couldn't wait to, uh, to, to share with everybody. Breakfast. Do we, do we eat breakfast or not? Not only do we, 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 we need a big breakfast. If oh. a bowl. Big that, bowl, big bowl. Yeah. Really big. <laughs> yeah. The more calories we can shove towards breakfast, um, the better way off we are metabolically. Yeah. Love it. What, what is the single so one of your you have these different ingredients for ideal weight loss right right at the top you have anti-inflammatory what did what have you in your opinion what's the most the single most pro-inflammatory food americans eat okay so the most pro-inflammatory food components Component, are yeah. are trans fats uh saturated fat and cholesterol right. um and so that and so they're all found in animal products um, and saturated fats and trans fats are also found in, uh, in junk food uh, made from uh, kind of tropical oils. Yep. So basically, you know, um, avoiding, you know, animal foods and processed foods. Um, I mean, so yeah. a plant-based diet is basically synonymous. A healthy plant-based diet is synonymous with an anti-inflammatory diet. And inflammation plays all sorts of roles, particularly actually in the brain in terms of uh, short-circuiting the wiring that's actually was naturally meant to keep us thin. So I have a hypothetical for you, Dr. Gregor, Dr. Gregor, you, you've gotten kind of depressed during COVID-19 with all this sheltering in place. You've actually been shoveling in too much food. Uh, I know that's hardly possible with, you know, if you're following a, you know, calorie density, eating low calorie density foods, but, but you you, haven't seen me put away watermelon, (laughs) but you've gained 20 pounds. You're going to your favorite grocery store. You're in the bulk section. You're looking at all the spices. They're running low. You can only get one spice to aid in your weight loss. What spice are you going to pick? Oh, God. <laughs> all right. Well, so, right. So it would be, oh, it would be between uh, oh, but- garlic, garlic powder and black cumin. So, I oh. mean, literally just a quarter teaspoon of garlic powder a day. That would cost two cents. A quarter teaspoon of garlic powder a day um, caused people to lose six pounds of straight body fat over 15 weeks. Um, uh, this is randomized control trial. You can put it in a little capsule. Uh, that's a teeny amount. Um, and this other, there's something called black cumin, um, yep. not regular cumin. Again, quarter teaspoon um, a day. Um, and also has other metabolic effects. That was another surprising thing. I'd never heard of black cumin in my life. Yeah. Um, and again, just these teeny little doses, which if you don't like the taste, I mean, it's a nice kind of peppery taste. You know, I like taste you can put it in a little capsule, take it that way, um, and get these surprising benefits regardless of what you eat. And I got a whole bunch of those kind of little tips and, and tweaks. Um, and I just, I, my concern with writing, that's, that's the whole second half of the book. 
um, the whole, my concern is that people would like skip the first half while the healthy eating, right? Yeah, and just yeah. go to, like the bikini bod tips and like keep drinking milkshakes and taking <laughs> the garlic powder. But it's like, I mean, I felt like I had to include everything that's been proven in randomized control trials to accelerate the loss well, of money. So, it's absolutely exhaustive. It is phenomenal. Really, really is. All right. Hey, I will see you, my man, August 14th, 15th at Plantstock. I can't 2000. wait. And we'll, we'll resume this conversation, all right? That's good. Looking forward to it. Hey, one diet to rule them all, baby. That's right. <laughs> Whole food, plant-based. That's right. See you, my man. Thank you. Peace Engine 2, Plant Strong. <laughs> Dr. Greger said it beautifully. If there was ever a time for transparency, global unity, and for standing up and protecting each other, now is that time. The stakes are, indeed, high. So it's time to change the way we make the stakes. Let's treat the cause and take care of ourselves and each other. Our future does depend on the actions that we take now. Thank you, as always, Dr. Michael Greger. For more information on his body of work, I encourage you to visit nutritionfacts.org. And make sure you register for Plant Stock 2020 to hear even more from Michael and all of our experts, including Dr. Neil Barnard, Gene Bauer, Dr. Michael Clapper, and next week's guest, Tracy McWhorter. The Plant Strong podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Kryle Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.